Hey, hello, hi, welcome to and we're back to the Equitheory podcast. I am your host, Jill Treese, and this week's episode is, of course, a continuation of the Beginner's Guide to Positive Reinforcement Horse Training, where I am starting from the beginning and breaking it all down for you guys. So this is going to be part three, and here we're going to talk about transitioning from traditional riding and horsemanship into ways that you can incorporate positive reinforcement into what you already do or how to transition fully, Um, you know, some of the things involved, like what is pressure, is it anything, just touching your horse, is that technically pressure, Um, you know, what is it like to communicate with an animal that doesn't speak your language, how clear can you be, Um, and what is your negative reinforcement brain, as I like to call it, and how does dominance theory play into this transition? Um, There's a lot that goes into it, and I think it will make for a pretty interesting episode, so I hope that you stick around, and without further ado, we are going to rock and roll right into this. Okay, three, two, one, go. Okay, all right, guys. So um, the Patreon ad that I just did the redo for is uh, kind of irrelevant now. So I'm going to go ahead and do one off the cuff instead of re-recording a pre-recorded one. But essentially, if you guys would like to support me and the horses, you can do so by joining the Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash equitheory. And it's the same way it's spelled here. And then you can support me and the horses uh, financially. There's an option to submit whatever amount you would like to do. But it does also have tiers. So you can join the $5 through $35 tier. Whichever one works for you. It works on a uh, monthly recurring basis. So every month you get charged whatever amount. You can cancel at any time with no penalty. And at each tier, there are a bunch of different perks. At Regardless of whichever tier you're at, you have is, uh, access to our Discord server, which I think is like the coolest thing ever. Um, and I'm on it, and there are there's a community of other people that all listen to the podcast and have similar values and views. And we have a bunch of different channels within the discord server. So you can, um, you know, choose to talk about behavior or random people life things or share pictures of your cats or do some video analysis or have someone help you break down some behaviors that you might be working on or just other people to talk to you about it. Because let's face it, finding like-minded positive reinforcement people can be a little bit difficult. So, um, this community is offered to you if you join the Patreon, if you would like to join the Discord server. Um, hi, Wally. <laughs> Beyond that, um, you can also send me one question to as many as you want, depending on your tier. The $5 tier, you just get one question, but you can always cancel and redo your subscription, and then you can ask more. Um, <laughs> it's a loophole for you. Um, but if you're at the $10 a month tier, you can just send me questions whenever you would like. And if you're at any tier that's higher than that, you can pretty much send me any question you would like or do a private phone call with me where we'll we'll talk about whatever, you know, you and your horse are working on or some issues that you might have or something that you're just not quite getting and you just would rather talk about it. That's 
personally my favorite. Um, then there's also the option to do a call live on the podcast. So I would record it and publish it so you could listen to it later. Um, and other people would learn from your question uh, and our conversation. And then um, at the top tier, which is $35 a month, you can have access to sending me up to 30 minutes of footage for that month. So, you know, if you only send 15 minutes the first month, you still have 30 minutes the next month and whatever. And you can always cut your clips into five-minute segments, so you can send me as many as you want, as long as it's under 30 minutes, because homegirl do be a little bit busy. But I will send you back an analysis of what I think is going on, what you did right, what we could work on uh, to finesse and get better, how we could work to better break down the behaviors and get you what you're looking for, and all that good stuff. And if you think about it, how much are your lessons traditionally? And then you got to do those like twice a week, and you know, they're four weeks in a month. So if your lessons are 40 to $60 each and then times two and then times four, um, that's a lot of money versus $35 a month for little old me giving you some consults. So, um, you know, it's up to you. You can support us if you would like, and you can make use of the benefits if you would like. If you just want to support us, you don't have to use any of them. Um, but Regardless, me and the horses appreciate it. And if you are not able to do it, no worries whatsoever. You can just keep on listening and that is good enough for me. Um, the last thing that I do want to point out in our little ad section here is my merch store. Um, it is the Jet Equithery merch store. You can find it on Teespring. Just go to teespring.com, type in Jet Equithery, and you'll find it. All of the designs that I have are available there and sweatshirt, hoodie, t-shirt, bag, banner, whatever you would like, stickers. Um, there's lots of things on that site. And um, that's another cool way you can support us and then have some dope merch to wear around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, but yeah, I think that is going to conclude our, our little ad section and my cats are knocking things over. Um, I think we can go ahead and get into the content. I'm so impressed, honestly, with how this episode's going so far to be, (laughs) to be straight up with you guys, because I did that intro on the first go and that ad on the first go, the ad was a little long, I'm sorry, but, um, the intro, usually I have to refilm and refilm and refilm and refilm, but you know, I'm, I'm happy that it went well the first go. Um, anyway, so let's talk about transitioning from traditional riding and horsemanship. Okay. This is, uh, a touchy topic and a tricky one to navigate, but hopefully I will get through it without, um, you know, upsetting anyone. Cause that is not my goal. So I just want to say first that the goal is not to shame anyone. If you're somebody who is not interested in positive reinforcement, number one, I'm not really sure why you're listening to the podcast, but thank you. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you are thinking about it but haven't transitioned um, or, you know, taken the steps or done the research or anything like that, but you're still kind of on the fence, like, please do not take this episode as an intention to um, in any way, shape or form make you feel bad or shame you or guilt you into working with your horse in the way that I believe is best. Okay. That's not what this is about. You know, your horse best, you know, your relationship with them best, you know, what works for you and what feels right to you. 
And above all else, I would trust that. And, you know, you can let it lead you into doing your own research and finding out just what feels right for your relationship with your horse. I know that there have been some episodes in the past and I got some um, messages from some of you guys about um, some of the positive reinforcement tutorial type series, um, you know, seeming a little aggressive or self-righteous. And I just wanted to kind of say on the podcast that I... A, really appreciate that feedback because it it lets me know what you guys like and what you don't. And sometimes, especially when you're in company with a like-minded individual, it can be really easy to slip into some language that is not in alignment with what I believe. And, you know, my whole purpose with this podcast is to educate and help bring what I know and what I have learned from my research and my online courses and everything that I do, you know, my work with the horses and experience to, you know, help give other people some ideas and the tools that they need to make an independent decision. The point of all of this is to provide you with information and education, access to resources so that you can find out for yourself and then proceed accordingly. It's not to make you align with what I do perfectly, you know, and of course I'm human. So sometimes that slips and I'm like, well, I'm right, you know, and I get self-righteous, but you know, that is a a character flaw, not, uh, not in alignment with my values and everything that I do is aimed at education and helping people make informed decisions. Because when you only know somebody like one individual, like your trainer's way Oh my God, the cats. When you only know one way of working with your horses, you don't have options. You don't have solutions. You just have what you know. And if it's not working, well, you know, the definition of insanity is to keep trying and doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. But something has to change. Either you, the environment, the type of training, the discipline, the horse, the tax, something has to change for the problem to, you know, I guess change. (laughs) I'm trying not to say that again, but you know, it's the point of all of this is to help people and not to make them feel worse. That has never been my goal or my purpose or mission with this podcast. It's always been to help bring what I know to you and make it easier because the information is disseminated all over the internet. And so, you know, my goal is to hopefully help kind of put it in one place and make sense of it and talk through it for you guys and for me (laughs) and, you know, just bring education to the horse world because it's, it's largely based in just what's always been done and, you know, your grandfather's way of doing it. But, you know, my argument has always been that the horse world has developed so much in you know, over the decades. It used to be that horses were used to, you know, travel from tribe to tribe or to um, work on the farmlands or to, you know, aid in war and battles and things like that. And now we use horses for pleasure, sport and recreation and therapy. So, you know, it would stand to reason that our training practices would also evolve. If our purpose has evolved and we no longer have to force animals to do the things that we need them to do so that we all survive, including the horse, even if he doesn't know that he's doing those things to survive, you know, it's, it's necessary. And from an ethical standpoint, it was justified back then. But now a lot of the practices that are commonly used and done don't line up with the ideals of fun and competition and enjoyment and enriching everyone's lives. And that's, that's where I think we can evolve a little bit past some of the archaic 
um, practices. And this is my opinion, and you are more than welcome to disagree. It's it's totally up to your perception and how you view the equine industry and how you would like to work with your horse. But to me, my interpretation is that a lot of the practices are outdated, and there are also other ways to work with the horses. So if you can work with the horse in a way that is not pressure and relief focused, then I, I don't see why you wouldn't want to do that. Um, outside of it being difficult because it's not the norm. But, um, you know, once you get the hang of it, it's it's fairly intuitive. And then it creates this awesome communication with your horse. It creates positive associations with you. And there's just there's a lot of benefit that I see that outweighs the cost of having to, you know, spend time and money and energy reading and learning about it. And so hopefully the podcast helps alleviate some of that necessary learning, you know, that you won't have to sit down and read it. You can drive your car, clean stalls or whatever. But um, yeah, so let's talk about it. So generally, when you start talking about positive reinforcement with um, people who have never heard of it or are used to traditional training, um, you know, it's it's a tricky subject because in order for me to explain why I use positive reinforcement and why I like it and why I choose to use it over another method has to, at some level, at least indirectly apply or imply that I prefer it over the other one, that I think it's better. And I do. I used to have uh, a really hard time communicating that, and I realized it was due to some cognitive dissonance. Um, I would be like, I don't have a problem with anybody else doing, you know, negative reinforcement. It's totally fine. It's a good way to train, but I, I want to do it this way. And I'm like, okay, well, if you think it's a lovely way to train, then why do you do something else? And I, I just, I, and now at some point have to acknowledge that I think positive reinforcement is better. I think it's better for the horse and I think it's better for the human. And there's just such a, the series of shifts that change for you and for your horse that just make everything go smoother and make it more enjoyable for both of you, even if it, you know, it doesn't look like it right now, if that makes sense. So, you know, I, I don't want to that to add to any of the shame or like making other people feel like I'm guilt tripping you. This is just what I believe. And you are free to believe something else. You can listen to this whole episode and disagree with me. And that's okay. I think you are doing what is best for you. And I think I'm doing what is best for me just because we do different things does not think I does not mean I think that you're a horrible person, or you don't know what you're doing or things like that. It just means that that's not what I choose to do. Because I think I have a better way. Just just like somebody who trains traditionally, and knows about positive reinforcement, but chooses not to use it, thinks that their way is better. It's it's all the same. You know, we all just are choosing what we think works best. And so when you are talking to somebody about it, it can be really tricky because when you explain why you think your approach is better, then you have to indirectly suggest why their approach is not good. For instance, people that train with positive reinforcement typically express that they feel more connected to their horses, their horses are now willing partners, and the horses are choosing to participate. And when you say things like that, you know, the people on the opposite side are like, well, my horse is choosing to participate and my horse enjoys the job, but you, being a positive reinforcement on the opposing side, are insinuating that that's not the case. Um, 
for the most part, I would have to agree that it's usually not the case. If given a choice, most horses would not choose to be ridden in a way that, you know, there's a lot of pressure on their faces that, um, you know, they get spurred or whipped. It's just, it's not a commentary on what tack or equipment you use, but basic logic would suggest that horses probably don't enjoy those things. And if given the choice, they would not choose to do it. They wouldn't participate for fear of those things. So, you know, it's about how do you make a horse want to ride with you and be with you and work with you and do all the things that you love so much? How do you make the horse enjoy it and choose it? And that's kind of what journey we're all on, I think, at least I hope, you know, I want my horses to have fun and enjoy the connection and the activities themselves. And, you know, I just think traditionally, it's very hard to get those positive emotions when you're working in a state um, and a part of the brain that is all about avoidance. And, you know, they're, the horses are actively trying to avoid pressure and seek relief. And it's, I don't know, I just, I prefer to work in a way where the horse is seeking the good things and they want to do the behaviors because, oh, I get a treat for it. And inadvertently, you end up classically conditioning those behaviors. So when I work with Zoe and I teach her to I don't pick up one of her legs and I point at her leg and she picks it up, then um, I click and I give her a treat. So yes, she's being reinforced with the food and that's great. And that's what drives the behavior initially. But over time that um, in the same way that the clicker gains meaning by becoming paired with the food and the clicker predicts food. And eventually the clicker also gets paired with those positive emotions that come from the food. Eating releases all sorts of good things in the brain. And so the clicker eventually starts to develop or deliver the same feeling. So a secondary reinforcer, you know, if it's used a lot and paired really strongly, it can become almost if not just as powerful at response elicitation as the um, the original stimulus, the, the treats. So the behaviors do the same thing. And this is called uh, the conditioned emotional response. And so you actually condition an emotion into the behavior. So for Zoe, if she picks up her leg and her body feels good and none of it hurts, you know, um, you know, she picks up her leg and I give her a treat and I do this for a long time. And she really learns um, that behavior really strongly. She responds to the cue every time she gets a treat every time. And eventually that behavior will start eliciting a similar emotional response as the food. So the behavior itself becomes rewarding. And that's where you can start doing behavior chains and you can start, um, you know, in written work for instance, you could chain a whole dressage test together because the horse feels good and is enjoying the movements and working with you and um, has a blast doing it because, A, they feel good and they understand it. There's clear communication. There are no aversives. And the horse also has an emotional response paired with those behaviors. Um, you know, it's I'm trying to think of a human example Um uh, it's, it's tricky. I guess you could say like, um, I mean, I guess a simple example would be like Pavlov's dog, um, for a human, you know, you're really hungry and you go to get food out of the fridge and the food elicits that response. But eventually, you know, your fridge will start to elicit that response. You look at it and you're like, Hmm, I think I'm hungry. And you get that same feeling that you would get from, 
looking at the food and it all kind of transfers. That's probably not the best example. I can't think of one off the cuff and I don't feel like pausing it to sit here and think for five minutes and come up with something that would, um, you know, be parallel to the horse example. But so that is, I guess, finally the end of my preface for this episode. But, um, you know, again, I just really want to reiterate because I made a mistake, um, on one of the previous episodes about, um, just be sounding really judgmental and self-righteous. And I just, I I hate that that happened and that's not what I want to ever happen again. So I just, I really want to make sure that you guys that are listening understand that none of this is to make anybody feel worse. If anything, it's to give you the tools to feel better. And that's the purpose, but I am human and I mess up sometimes and I am from here on out (laughs) to doing the best to make sure that that doesn't happen. So um, yeah, so let's let's dive in. The first question everybody always asks is, is it all or nothing? Can you use pressure? So, you know, I'm a traditional writer and I come from, you know, a, the eventing world. Can I continue to do those things and ride, quote unquote, normally, um, but also use positive reinforcement? The short answer is it depends. <laughs> And that's kind of how everything works. I actually had somebody ask me a question about that because they um, said in my episode with Shelby, I was talking about, um, Shelby Dennis, I mean, talking about how you can mix and you can do both. And then in my episode with Kane, I really advised against that. And it, it part of that obviously comes from like who I'm talking to and I'm not going to, you know, argue with one of them on the podcast and be like, actually, I disagree, and then spiral off into that. Um, But, you know, I'm starting to think that maybe I should (laughs) so that you guys get some clarity. But I also hate having to caveat every single statement of mine and my guests. But the point is, it depends. And I want to provide some clarity to what I confused a little bit. So in my episode with Shelby, I talked about how you, if it's done well, you can definitely mix and not suffer any repercussions. That's, it's, it's doable. But in my episode with Kane, I, we were talking about an introduction to positive reinforcement writing and all the beginning things. And I would really say that if you are a beginner to positive reinforcement, to not mix because it, if you're not an adept trainer, then you, you risk confusing the horse or poisoning cues or things like that. So it's, it's better to just pick one and do that as much as you can. And if you need to in certain situations, then you can work up your uh, humane hierarchy um, of behavior modification ladder. And so it's, like I said, it depends. And it's it's tricky to answer because you definitely can mix. And Shelby does. And Shelby mixes very effectively. And Kane, for the most part, is pretty much purely positive reinforcement as far as I'm aware. So it's... Um, you know, just a difference in approach and being really methodical and making sure that you are a hundred percent deliberate with what you're doing and you're not just doing negative reinforcement and then clicking and treating for it. Uh, that is where you run into issues. And I talked about that in the last episode. If you haven't listened to it, I dived really deep into poison cues and, um, negative reinforcement with a cherry on top. And so I would listen to that episode if you're not clear on that, but, you run those risks with mixing. So I would say that if you're just starting out, just keep them separate. 
If you have a horse that has an issue with the cross ties and you just kind of want to problem solve with positive reinforcement, just do that. Um, but you also run the risk of when you transition. So, you know, like if you take your horse in the cross ties and you get them comfortable and standing in the cross ties, but then you want to get on and go ride, um, then it's you've switched to negative reinforcement. And so, you know, the horse might not want to leave the cross ties if after a while he learns that the cross ties are where he gets treats for being good and standing and comfortable and happy. Lots of good emotions are paired with that place. Um, and then when you want to leave to go do riding and you use strictly negative reinforcement, your horse might not want to leave the cross ties. And so these are things that you have to consider. And I am never an advocate for not trying to improve the horse's welfare and emotional well-being. You know, if your horse has an issue with the cross ties, work on it. But if your horse doesn't want to leave the cross ties because he has an issue with your riding, fix your riding. Don't just give up on the positive reinforcement and making the horse, you know, comfortable and happy because you still want to ride. Figure out how to ride in a way that your horse enjoys and doesn't try to avoid the prediction of, you know, and some horses do avoid the cross ties or avoid being caught because they know it's predicting riding and they don't like it. So, you know, and obviously not every horse does that because not every horse doesn't enjoy riding. A lot of them don't because of the way that we ride most times, but a lot of horses also don't have an issue with it or enjoy it. So, you know, obviously it's dependent on the individual and that's something that you're going to have to gauge for yourself. But I would really read up on mixing before you do it. Um, I know Alexander Carlin has a lot of podcast episodes about it. There's a lot of literature out there on it. Um, the book Behavior Modification for Horses by Patty Damier, I believe, um, talks a lot about mixing. I think it's a bit of an older book, so it might not be like the newest um, evidence and research, but it's, it's a good beginner's guide for mixing. But um, you do have to worry or not worry but like consider the fact that you know if you're creating a really good place then you might offset the balance of your horse not wanting to go to the place that they perceive as bad and that is that is a huge part of all of this is that it is the animal's perception that matters not ours the, that's why i i went with the student of the horse um kind of mantra or I guess, tagline that's on all my merch because that's, that is it. The horses are the experts. And I think I kind of took that away from my mental health counseling program because um, a lot of the more postmodern and progressive counseling approaches are all centered around the client being the expert on their own lives. The therapist is just there to kind of help guide through all of those things and help the person really define what they want out of life and work through some issues and things like that. But I think it also applies to horse training because the horses know themselves best. They know what they like and they know what they don't like. So it's never our uh, right to decide like, uh, well, he should like the treats. And if he doesn't like them, well, then he's not getting any, you know, well, no, change treats, try a different one, try feeding it from a different position, try feeding it in the bucket. Some horses don't know that they can take food from people's hands. Sometimes hands mean that they get hit in the face, so they don't want to come near your hand. You know, every horse has a different experience, a different perception, and it is up to them. They're not wrong. It's it's us and our blaming. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people try to feed a horse a treat and the horse won't take it. And they're like, well, fine, then you don't get one. It's like, why are you like that? Like if somebody handed you a piece of broccoli for your training and you were like, 
no, give me something better. You know, you're not like if they were to say to you, well, fine, then you don't get a reward. Then how likely are you going to be to do training? You're not. You're going to be like, that sucked. I don't like that. So, you know, just consider it from that way and just realize that your horse is the expert on themselves. And if they're not doing something, then there's there's a, a need for reevaluation. So if you cue your horse for a behavior that they know really well and they're not doing it, they might have a rib out or their back might hurt or they might be working on an abscess in their hoof and they're not quite lame yet, you know, things like that. And just really ensuring that you are giving the horse the benefit of the doubt. They're not your enemy. Um, and, you know, that leads me into the dominance theory uh, consideration, I guess, because, you know, I did episodes in season two, I believe it's episodes 30, 31, and then 35 was on join up. And all of those episodes you can find on your podcast listening platform, or you can find on YouTube. Um, please subscribe, dear God. <laughs> I need more subscribers on that channel so we can monetize it. Um, and I'm hoping that once it gets monetized, then, um, you know, I, I might start doing um, the podcast where you can, like, see me. Like, I'll do videos. I ordered a, an external battery for my camera so I can record for a long time. Um, so that might be cool. Might be something that's coming in the future. So please subscribe if you have a YouTube channel. It takes three seconds. Um, but anyway, so I did those episodes on dominance theory, and I think they're probably some of the most important episodes that I've ever done because, um, a lot of people did not know. And, um, I didn't realize that a lot of people didn't know, but I was also one of those people not too long ago. And there's also a YouTube video up on Jet Equithery that's a shorter version of all of that. But, um, essentially dominance theory is the idea of like pack theory and alpha and herd leader and all that good stuff. And basically we've just all misunderstood it and misconstrued what the actual science shows and that to work with your horse in a way that you are trying to be alpha is a not logical or realistic and B, it's often just a justification to be able to do things to your horse that without that justification, you would not be able to do because you would feel bad. But, you know, if your horse bites you and you hit him in the face and you say, well, you know, he has to learn. I have to discipline him. Otherwise, he's going to think he can walk all over me. Or, you know, he bit me, I'm bit biting him back because that's all he understands. He doesn't understand it if I explain it to him. Um, you know, all of those things justify that behavior of hitting and it make it, 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 those justifications make it easier for you to continue doing it. And it seems to work in the moment, but, you know, over time, if the horse is doing the biting for a reason, the hitting is probably not going to curb it. And, you know, sometimes it does because the horse learns that uh, communicating is pointless and that's what we call learned helplessness. So, Take, for instance, an example of a horse that is girthy, and maybe they have ulcers. And so when you do up the girth, your horse swings his head around and nips at you, a few warning bites, and then finally he catches you off guard and actually gets you and bites your arm. And you punch him in the face and you're like, you are such a dick. You're so lazy. I We're going to work. You're not getting out of it. I'm sorry. You know, then... um and you're like, well, I had to hit him in the face because I had to teach him a lesson and I don't want him to think that he can just bite me. That makes sense, but it's coming from the wrong place. And if you come from the right place, the one that is well-versed in equine ethology and 
behaviors, then you you don't see it the same way. If I had a horse that I was girthing up and I I tightened the girth and an ear twitched back, um, you know, and they were like, uh, I'm not going to proceed because I don't want it to escalate to the point where the horse has to even nip at me to let me know that it's uncomfortable. I want the horse to be comfortable the whole time. And so, you know, if I was girthing up a horse and they bit at me, I'm not going to be thinking, okay, this horse is just an asshole. This horse is trying to kill me or he's trying to, you know, show me he's boss or he's trying to get out of work. None of those things cross my mind anymore because of the research that I've done. And oops, sorry, didn't mean to kick you. There was a cat under my desk and I accidentally kicked him. Um, But now I come from a place of why. And I don't go for the simple dominance theory answer that a lot of people go for. Um, it's a heuristic in your brain. You know, horse bites equals horses dominant. So you must quash dominance. But if you take a moment to slow your thinking down and a horse nips at you and you are like, okay, why? What just happened? What happened right before the horse bit at me? Were there any other signs? Has he been slowly laying his ears back? Has his eye gotten worried? Are his nostrils pulling back? Does he look tense in his body? Has his tail been swishing? Has he been giving me signs that predicted that he was going to bite me? Was he trying to tell me, hey, 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 until he had to scream at me to get me to pay attention? So those are things to think about first. And then ask yourself, okay, so why would the horse be doing that? What have I been doing? What has changed? Because, you know, I led him into the cross ties and he was perfectly happy, just chilling, hunky-dory. And then I brought out the saddle and then he he got a grumpy expression on. So I wonder why. And then you start isolating variables. You say, okay, is it the saddle pad? Is it the saddle? Is it the girth? I did this with one of our horses and... um worked him through. I identified that it was the girth that was causing the problem. And then I worked to counter condition it and teach a different response after I ruled out pain. So, you know, when a horse is biting because you're girthing it up, it's 99% of the time going to be a pain thing. Um, The horses aren't aggressive creatures by nature. It might seem that way because of how we um, house them and manage them domestically, but they are not by nature aggressive animals. So when they are being aggressive, it is a sign that something is seriously wrong and you need to intervene immediately. So if your horse is pinning its ears when you are girthing it up, you need to be like, okay, uh, let me look up that video on how to palpate for ulcers and see if that's it. Let me um, get my vet out and scope or, you know, test them themselves um, maybe we need to get a saddle fitter or a body worker out, a chiropractor. Um, maybe he has a rib out. Maybe his sacrum is hurting. Maybe, you know, the saddle gullet isn't wide enough. Those are all things to think about. And, you know, you wouldn't want to run around in, you know, if you were a runner in shoes that are ill-fitted, like platform heels that are, you know, size two sizes too small, it's going to be uncomfortable. And if somebody hit you every time you complained about putting them on, you know, eventually you're just going to put them on and carry on about your day, or you're going to get very angry with that person and start uh, like trying to hurt them. And so I think when you come at it from that perspective, then all of that gets a lot easier because then you're like, oh, okay, my horse isn't, he doesn't hate me. He's not being an asshole and he's not trying to usurp my authority or take my dominance from me. Um, he's just trying to tell me, hey, that doesn't feel good or I don't like that. I'm uncomfortable, you know, 
So it, it enhances your relationship with your horse in that way. And that's a simple mindset shift. You know, even if you're not somebody who wants to do full positive reinforcement, coming at negative reinforcement with that perception is so, so helpful. It'll make you such a kinder rider, one that's more in tune and has more success with your horses. Um, because just labeling them as hot or grouchy or lazy, it doesn't do anything to help you or the horse. And it just makes them and you, frankly, suffer more because you're both hating the situation the whole time. So um, that is going to lead into our um, discussion of pressure. So the common thing that people say is like, okay, well, if you train with positive reinforcement, you can't ride because you just sitting on the horse is pressure and positive reinforcement, you don't want to use pressure. No, <laughs> not not true. Um, I did that positive reinforcement riding series with Kane, um, where we talk about this in greater detail, but to sum it up, essentially you just like, there's a difference between tactile pressure and aversive pressure. So again, this is going to be entirely dependent on the horse's perception for some horses, especially ones that have say ulcers that make their skin really sensitive. Um, tactile pressure is aversive. So you can't even touch them without them finding it like something that they want to remove. So um, in order to, you know, work with tactile pressure that's not negative reinforcement or um, positive punishment, you would have to ensure that the horse is comfortable with it um, and, you know, treat any illnesses or sicknesses that might be um, perpetuating a dislike for touch. But Assuming that you have a healthy, happy horse who is not suffering from ulcers, you know, you're... Sorry, my chair is unbelievably squeaky. So I just broke a lot of things. We're going to we're gonna take a break, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back into it. But um, I knocked over my whole shelf and broke a statue, so rip. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, statue has been cleaned up. So for some reason, when I do these podcast episodes. I usually take a while and I guess talking makes me hot. <laughs> so I got hot and I wanted to open my window to let some air in and it bumped my shelf and then it knocked off, made my book fall over and then the statue fell off and then broke. But anyway, so <laughs> continuing with what we were saying, um, you know, assuming that you have a horse that is comfortable with, you know, you touching them, human interaction, enjoys scratches and things like that you know they're not sensitive to touch they don't mind it or it's neutral whatever um so assuming you've got that horse then you know if you train positive reinforcement cues you can touch the horse and make that a part of your cue without it being negative reinforcement or positive punishment so how do you know well is the horse going to try and alleviate the pressure or is the horse responding to the cue? It, it can be really hard to tell. Um, but, you know, if it's think about when you're riding and, you know, the horse is walking and you pull back on the rein, they stop because they're trying to get you to stop the pressure. Most horses have been trained that when you pull on the rein, if they stop, then you stop pulling, you release. That is the reward. That's what people call it. That is not a reward. No, Nobody in their right mind human-wise, would ever consider relief a reward, <laughs> you know? Somebody that's uncomfortable, them leaving is not rewarding. It's, you know, it's it's just relief. Um, you wouldn't work at your job just for the relief. You work for the reward, for the money, which might provide relief, but that's not 
that's not the motivation. So when you um, are working with tactile cues, it's just like, you know, if I say wanted Zoe to pick up her leg, I could run my hand down her leg and she would pick it up. Not because I'm squeezing her, um, but because she'll pick it up. The difference is some horses would know that if they don't pick up their leg with you just touching it, that you're going to start squeezing eventually and insist that they pick it up. And in order to avoid that pressure escalation, they're going to pick it up when you just touch them. Um, So in a positive reinforcement trained horse, a clicker trained horse, they would know that um, if you touch their leg and they pick up their foot, then they get a treat. So there's a different motivation. And that's how you tell if the horse is, you know, responding from positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement. It's all about how it was trained. Both of those things can look the same. You know, if I walked into a field, you know, and ran my hand down a hundred horses' legs, you wouldn't be able to tell which ones are positively reinforcement trained or negatively reinforcement trained. They all look the same, but the way that they were taught is very different. Um, So those are the different types of pressure. Uh, there's tactile, there's aversive, and there's emotional. You can put pressure on your horse emotionally. And I know that this makes me sound like I'm branching into woo-woo stuff, but I'm in an animal emotions course right now. Um, and it's, um, I forget what exactly branch it's under, but it's an IAABC course, which is the International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants. Um, And I'm taking it for funsies. And uh, I'm learning about all of Yak Panksepp's work and how he did all that research identifying the seven core emotions and all of that. Connection training works a lot um, using those core emotions. And I think that's great. And I'm hoping to get that proficient here soon. Um, But essentially, you know, if you were to, you know, that's where mixing can be a confusing thing for horses. Because if you are, you know, like, like I've said in the previous episode about you're at work, and your boss says, see me after work or come by my office after work, I need to talk to you. You don't know if you're going to get fired or if you're going to get a raise, you don't know what's going to happen. And then you kind of simmer in the state of anxiety. That's what can happen with horses when you um, use negative reinforcement cues and positive reinforcement cues together, and the horse doesn't know if he's going to get relief or a reward. And that is emotional pressure. There's also emotional pressure by you walking to them aggressively. Horses, there have been studies, and horses can read your facial expressions, uh, you know, to some degree. And if you have a really angry face and your posture is aggressive and you're walking at them straight on, they're going to be like, ooh, no, I'm going to move away from you. And that's negatively reinforcing. They feel safer when they're away from you because you're scary. So, and that is more of an emotional pressure because it's not technically physical. Um, And I'm not sure what else that category would fall under, but I I feel like it's more emotional because they're like, oop, you're going to make me dead. So I'm going to, I'm going to dip. Um, but, uh, so those are some different types of pressure. Um, the one that people that train with positive reinforcement usually tend to try and avoid is the, um, aversive pressure. The ones that the horses seek to relieve and they want that pressure off. 
because it just it makes things more enjoyable when you're not working with your animal in a way that they're constantly trying to get you to stop doing the things that you're doing. You know, like when you ride and you pull back on your reins and your horse is like, okay, I'm going to stop so that they stop pulling on me or I'm going to go forward so that they stop kicking me or I'm going to jump this fence that scares the bejesus out of me because I don't want to get hit with the whip. You know, that it's it's a different part of the brain and the emotional systems that you're working off of. Um when the horse is working off avoidance. And that's just not something I really like. And, you know, some people can ride like that all day long and their horses will still come up to them. But other horses will continue to avoid you everywhere else. They'll run from you in the field they or they won't come to you in the field. Or, um, you know, some that do come to you might be avoiding being chased around the field. You know, there's, there's a lot of explanations. And to me, it just, it feels better. And there is research to back that feeling to just work with the horses with positive reinforcement and engage their um, seeking systems where they're, you know, looking for the answer and they want the food and all of the good emotions that come with the training and the behaviors. Everything just turns into this like, ah, everything is great. We love doing this. And your mindset shifts too, as I talked about, and I think part one of this series, but I think now we can move into the, um, like, how to start transitioning. So the bullet question I have is, if you've been working with your horse using negative reinforcement until now, how do you not confuse between the two? How do you start implementing it and not overlap with traditional and confuse the horse? So if you've been working traditionally, not confusing the two is pretty simple. I mean, if you apply pressure in any way and then click and give it a treat, you're not giving true positive reinforcement. You know, I talked about in the last episode about a girl I saw online that was had her horse lunging on a lunge line and she's swinging her arm or the end of the rope at the horse's hindquarters. And, you know, after it goes around a few times, she clicks and gives it a treat. Well, that's not positive reinforcement. she's positively reinforcing the horse, yes, but the reason the horse is performing the behavior of doing the trot circle around her is not motivated by positive reinforcement. The horse is not doing it to get the treat. The horse is doing it so she doesn't, you know, bonk bonk him in the hind end. Um, And he's trying to avoid that happening. So by, um, by moving off of that pressure, then he he doesn't get hit and that's relief. And then he keeps doing what he's doing until she asks him to slow down or she clicks. So, um, you know, that's, I wouldn't advise doing that. And I really don't like to see it, um, because it scares me because you can accidentally end up poisoning it. And I just, I'm like, okay, pick one, either just do it traditionally or just do it, you know, with positive reinforcement. Neither are more difficult than the other. Um, but, you have to be diligent and deliberate about it. And, um, you know, of course you don't want to confuse the horse. So, you know, like I said earlier, if you bring your horse into the cross ties and, you know, you've been clicking and reinforcing for being in the cross ties, then you take your horse out for a ride, you know, you're running into a mixing situation. So what I would do for something like that is set aside like a week to work on the cross ties and, help the horse get comfortable with them, work on it, and just don't ride for that week. 
And then, you know, maybe the next time you come out, you just reinforce a couple times when you're in the cross ties and you're giving the horse scratches the whole time. Um, and you're telling him what a good boy he is and you're doing a lot of things that he likes in the cross ties. And then slowly you can start fading out the treats and, um, you know, changing to more scratches or you could have started with scratches. God, this chair is awful. Um, (laughs) and then that way, you know, he's not like looking for food and scratches tend to elicit more of the care system in the brain so that the horses relax more and, those are associated with the calm, feel-good hormones more so than the, like, excited, ooh, what are we doing, seeking system ones. Um, so getting the horse to relax and settle into it is a really good thing, but you have to make sure that your horse likes scratches and you're doing it in a way that they like. Do not pat your horse, dear God, please. That is not pleasant for anyone. Um, <laughs> but you can do something like that and then gradually fade out the treats and then continue on about your normal ride. Um, but... I think that if you just, if you give him lots of treats in the cross ties and get him over it to where he's really good in the cross ties, and then you just, the next day you don't give him any treats at all, you're probably going to have a monster in the cross ties and a horse that's offering a ton of behaviors trying to get you to give him reinforcement because he enjoys it and he likes food. And you have told him that the rules so far are that he gets treats in the cross ties. So you have to explain it to the horse in a way that's fair rather than like put yourself in his situation like somebody's taking you somewhere giving you these really awesome things and every time you go to that place you're going to expect those awesome things and then one day there are no awesome things anymore and then you're expected to just stand there while they put things on you and then take you and go make you exercise really hard like mm, yeah you're probably going to undo some of your work and beyond that when you ask When you're standing in the cross ties or in that area and you're asking, well, hey, what about my treats? Like, don't you normally give me things that I really like when I'm here? What's going on? And then you get punished for it. So, you know, put yourself in the horse's shoes. Think about how confusing it would be for them or how clear it is for them and work off of that um, to make it easier for the horse to understand and also help you come up with ways to get your goals accomplished, you know. Um, So... I would, at the beginning, especially when you first start working with positive reinforcement, I would just say keep them separate. Do your sessions separately. So, you know, if you are, um, hey, what are you doing? Stop that. If you, (laughs) cat's like pulling things out of my shelf. Um, That shelf has been through enough today. If you go, you know, you go get your horse and you tack him up and you ride and then you put them away, hang out for like 15 minutes and then go back out to their field and then work with them with positive reinforcement. You know, just break it up a little bit and, you know, make sure you have something really identifiable. Like every time you wear a certain hat, you're doing clicker training. You are literally wearing your clicker training hat. (laughs) Um, Or the thing that people mostly use is the bum bag, um, you know, having a fanny pack if you're not from the UK, because we don't call it that if we're from the UK. Um, but if you're in the US, that's that's what we call it. But um, using a bum bag, a treat bag, having that around your waist usually indicates to the horse, oh, we're doing a training session. So then they expect it. But if it's not there, then they they know you're not. But that takes time for the horse to learn that um, and notice it. But they're very good at context. So that could be something that you could help use to differentiate it. Um, so, you know, I, like this is a, a beginner intro uh, 
series. So I would say to just keep them separate for now uh, until you learn more and you get more well-versed in it, you've done some more research, and you think you know how you can best apply both of them without confusing the horse or poisoning a cue, things like that. Um, so, hi, Wally. <laughs> some other things that I kind of just want to discuss. I've got some bullets here. Um, really don't overdo it in the beginning. When you first start working with your horse, you know, it's a new way for them to think and interact with you and it can be really difficult like just for a fun experiment i really encourage you to grab a friend and then try and clicker train them to do something without words um and then have them do it to you and find out how difficult it is uh to understand and just guess what you're supposed to do especially if the other person doesn't really know what they're doing and isn't clicking you on time and isn't being accurate or um clicking for small enough efforts so you know, just things like that. Uh, it, it'll really help you understand what your horse is experiencing and make you a better trainer. And if you like, you probably wouldn't be able to do that with your friend for 30 minutes, you would be exhausted mentally from thinking and guessing. So, you know, for a horse to go that long in clicker training, it can be really emotionally and mentally draining. So when you first start out, when the horse is doing all of this guesswork and is probably emotionally through the roof because they're like, food, we're working with food. Oh my God, this is great. Um, you know, keep it shorter. Um, also be sure that you leave your sessions with food on the ground. I don't know that I've said that thus far in the series, but, um, you know, have an end of session cue. Like I always put treats in the bucket or the alfalfa pellets that I'm using. I'll put a pile in the bucket and then be like, all done and walk away. So then Zoe knows we're done training. Um, so there's that. Keep it short and sweet and simple for your sake because, you know, if you're brand new at this, you probably don't have a lot of plans. Hopefully you do. I would really recommend keeping a training journal and breaking the behaviors down before you go work on them. Um, but, you know, make sure you have a plan and then when you feel like things have gone well, end it. You know, 10, 15 minutes is probably long enough for your first couple of sessions. Um, I wouldn't really exceed that. A lot of people don't even, like your horse will tell you, you can tell when they start getting slower to respond that they're getting fatigued. Um, usually with the young ones, I got about five minutes <laughs> before they start, uh, before I start losing them. Um, but another thing to consider is that some horses have issues in the beginning with positive reinforcement because um, they have a fear of being wrong. And that fear comes from, you know, in the past when they've guessed or they've offered an alternative solution, like say you're leading your horse away from his herd and he's like, mm, I really don't want to go there. How about we go back to the herd? And he starts to turn and you yank on the lead or shank it or something. Um, you know, then the horse is like, okay, not allowed to make suggestions noted. And, you know, there are lots of circumstances that that happens in, uh, particularly in riding or in the cross ties when the horse expresses themselves or, offers another behavior they get punished for it and so when you're trying to take a horse out of that mindset and teach them how to think and guess and problem solve that can actually be really really anxiety inducing for the horse because imagine if you're at work and every time you offer up a new solution or a new product idea or business idea or something you're boss and coworkers laugh at you and ridicule you and tell you you're stupid and demote you. And so then you get really 
really shut down about promoting new ideas. And then one day your boss walks in and he's like, hey, I want to hear your ideas. I'll reward you for them. Go. You're probably going to be shaking in your boots because you're like, ah, I don't want to get fired. I don't know if he's going to do something wrong or if he's kidding or if he's, you know, actually going to like it. And I I don't want to get hit or demoted or any other form of punishment. So that can happen for the horses, too, when they've been conditioned to believe that trying new things or expressing themselves in any way, you know, whether it's like or dislike, has been shut down, they're going to be afraid to try. And they're not going to be great problem solvers at the beginning because they're going to be afraid of it. So it makes them really insecure and they just wait for the correction the whole time. So in order to help mitigate that, you have to reward the little things. I would start at liberty and protected contact, you know, over a stall door or over a paddock fence. And they are not connected to you in any way. They are free to stay or leave. And then you click for little things. You know, if you're doing target training, if the horse looks at it with its eyeball but doesn't move its head, click for that. Click for any indication that they're moving in the right direction. And then you can slowly start raising your criteria. And then over time, the horse will learn, okay, my person is not punishing me anymore for saying things or expressing things. Sometimes this means the horses will get really out of hand and they get really bad before they get better because they, they're like, okay, well, that's never happening again. You're not ever going to put me in that box again where I feel like I can't do anything or say anything. And now that you're not doing that anymore, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. And I've had a lot of horses that have come from bad homes. And when they get to us, they are the most docile what you call dead broke, lovely horses. And then when I start working with them with positive reinforcement and then nobody is punishing them anymore, they get really awful. And I think that's what deters a lot of people from, you know, switching to uh, like an ethical Lima system. And because the horses get really bad. (laughs) But if you don't push through to the other side, then you don't see how incredible your partnership can be with your horse because now it's actually two-way communication. The horse has an input and they can say no and you will respect it. Um, But at the beginning, they're kind of just like, hard no, you've been a dick. I'm not doing that. Um, You know, obviously it depends on how you've worked with your horse in the past. Not everyone who rides with negative reinforcement is harsh on their horses, but I definitely was. And when I started working with positive reinforcement, Zoe picked it up really easily. Um, she was like, okay, thank God we're not doing that anymore. I love this. Let's keep doing it. But Mac, when we got him, he was, he came off the trailer and he was, he like hadn't been in a stall, out of a stall in two years. And we turned him out into a paddock for the first time, two years. He didn't run. He trotted a couple steps, but that was about it. And I was like, that's weird. And the horse that came off the trailer with him is doing donuts. So we were like, uh, okay. And then gradually it started to make more sense to me. As I worked with him, he got more and more explosive. And I was like, what is going on? And he was just, he just would explode out of nowhere to me. It wasn't out of nowhere. I just wasn't paying attention to his, you know, pre-warning signs. But, um, Then when I started working with him in a way that he felt safe and I didn't reprimand him for doing all of those things, he started to trust me. And he was like, okay, this human is not going to hurt me and everything's fine. Even when I'm expressing myself in a way that is not so great and I'm telling her kindly to fuck the fuck off um, and she's fine. 
She's not doing anything. Okay. And then that sort of, it sounds counterintuitive, but it really does build a, a bridge of trust. And I'm not saying that if your horse kicks out at you that you need to just stand there and take it. Um, but, you know, if you can avoid it, avoid disciplining them, especially if you're not connected to them, you know. You know, if they, if they are connected to you and they're rearing up and striking out, you're probably going to have to do some things that are not going to be super pleasant for the horse. But if you can just step away, do that. And then you can slowly start to gain their trust and then teach them other ways of behaving. For Mac, I really didn't have to do that. Like, it was just enough that I wasn't hurting him. And he started to trust that I would never hurt him and that anytime he told me what he thought be it good or bad, you know, or anywhere in between, I didn't punish him for it. If he wanted to leave the session, he could leave. And once he realized that he had that freedom, all of that anxiety and aggression and dangerous behavior just went away because he's no longer afraid of me. He trusts me and he has faith in the fact that I'm not going to hit him because of our reinforcement history together. I have never punished him. So he, he knew, you know, I have no reason to fear this human anymore. She's earned my trust. And so I don't have to act like that anymore. And so I made it my mission to prove to that horse that I would never hurt him. And he started trusting me and he never, and like, I didn't have to teach him how to stand with all four feet on the ground, you know, in lieu of bucking or kicking out at me. He just stopped doing it because he didn't need to anymore. He wasn't afraid of me. I wasn't scaring or hurting him anymore. And so that is something that I really, um, really encourage you to do. But you have to do it safely and you have to do it well because, and that's why I recommend protected contact, because if you're in there with the horse and they come at you and do something dangerous, you're going to have to hit them, you know, probably to defend yourself. So take take that out of the equation. Put a fence in between you so that you're safe and that you won't have to do that. And then you can build that trust. Um, so, yeah, I just I really want to stress that I'm not advocating for just like letting horses bite you and kick you. That's not the point. The point is to set up the environment so that the horse is successful and you are successful and you can build that relationship and trust from you know, where nobody ever has to get hurt. And then you can start working together um, in the same vicinity when you both are fully trusting that nothing is going to get dangerous. Um, so then we also have, um, you know, what I talked about with having clicker training your friend and having them clicker train you um, is this thing called the curse of knowledge. I actually learned it in my animal emotions course. Um, is some studies that I think were done in the 80s or the 60s or something, one of those even ones. Um, and they did this test where they would have a group of people that were given a list of songs and they could pick a song and then they would have to like tap it. And then there were onlookers that um, would just listen to the tapping and then guess the song. So the onlookers pick their, or the, the tappers pick their song and, you know, they tap it and they're like, you know, happy birthday, whatever. So um, they do it like that. And then, you know, the they think it's obvious. Obviously, they don't sing it along. I just did that, you know, so you could have a little taste of how beautiful my singing is. Um, but the the onlookers you know, would have to guess the song and the tappers, they were interviewed before they knew who all guessed the song. And they were like, I would say at least 50% understood what song I chose. You know, they chose very popular songs that like everyone would know. 
um, and there was less than 2.5% of the onlookers got the songs correct. And they estimated 50%. So that is what we call the curse of knowledge. So sometimes it happens to me on these podcast episodes. Things that are seem trivial or easily understood to me, when I'm explaining them, I might not explain it super well because I'm really familiar with the material and I don't know what you guys don't know. So, you know, I might glaze over some things that you're like, wait, I didn't, I don't know what that word means. What did you say? And then you have to go look it up, you know, and then it, it dampens our clarity of communication. So that happens with the horses too, and that you might think you're communicating something really clearly, but the, if the horse is not getting it, you're not communicating it clearly. So you need to try another way. Hi. Okay. <laughs> or go back to the drawing board, break down the behavior some more, and maybe you skipped a couple steps. Maybe you increased your criteria too quickly. Um, so another thing to consider when you first get started is um, where are you going to train? So if you have been at the same barn for the past 10 years in the indoor arena and every time you're in there, you have ridden with a whip and spurs and your horse has stopped at jumps and you've had to do some things you don't like, you know, that's probably not a very good area to start your training because the horse is going to have an association with that area in the same way that they learn to pair, you know, the behaviors with the positive association of food, they can learn to pair the arena or a place with what happens in there. So if the arena predicts that they're going to get whipped and spurred and ridden until their hide falls off, then they're probably not going to like being in there very much. Some horses, you know, depending on how they're ridden are probably, you know, they might not have a problem with it. But if they're like an old lesson pony that's had eight different kids bouncing on him all day, every day for the past 20 years, he's probably not really going to enjoy the arena and you're probably not going to get much out of him. So pick a place that's neutral or has a, a really positive association for the horse. And um, so those things are really important to consider because you want to set the environment up for success. In the last episode, I believe we talked about antecedent arrangement and making sure that you are setting it up for success. You know, you don't want to take your horse into a really scary environment and then start positive reinforcement training for the first time because they're going to be like, fuck you and your carrots. I got, I got to get out of here. I'm going to die, um, you know, or in the arena. And they're like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to get punished if I even try. You know, some horses get like that. That's not everybody's horse. But there are horses like that out there and you might not know it. So be aware of the environment. Um, beyond the helping the horse, you know, be successful, it also helps you stay in your mindset so you don't, um, you know, start treating them in the way that you would traditionally. So, you know, a lot of traditional riding and training is based off of, sorry, I had to move my chair is so obnoxious. Um, a lot of it is based off of like, okay, what is the horse doing wrong? How do I fix it? Correct, 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 correct. Make it better, make it better, make it better. And a lot of that is done through force and pressure and whatnot. And that's all fine and dandy. But if you go into positive reinforcement training with that mindset, you're going to get really frustrated with it and you're not going to have a good time. And the whole purpose is to enhance your relationship with your horse. So if you go in there and you're like, it's not working. I hate it. This horse is stupid. It's not getting it. Then, you know, it's, it's probably not going to go well. So if you're in a new neutral environment for yourself as well, like maybe you never work with your horse in the round pen 
And that's where you decide you want to start your sessions and you put your horse in the round pen and you start working, then the environment is going to remind you that this is something different. You're doing something else instead of kind of leading you back into the the old thoughts. So that would happen probably in the riding arena where you're used to getting the behaviors and having your horse, you know, just kind of be obedient. Um, so when you have that expectation of something that's totally new, it can be really difficult to keep it um, in perspective. So, you know, try, try a new environment for both of you. Um, so, you know, that kind of leads me to think about the negative reinforcement brain, as I call it. Sandra Papama actually wrote a blog piece on her website. It's called um, HippoLogic. I think the website is clickertraining.ca is the website, and but you can just Google HippoLogic and find her website that way. Um, but she wrote a blog post after our conversation because I talked about it, and I was like, you know, sometimes my negative reinforcement brain just kicks in, and then I do things that I... I don't want to do anymore, but it's just, it's muscle memory. It's habit. It's the way that I thought for 10 years. And now it's hard for me to like, let go of that. So, um, you know, one of you wrote me about it and, um, I thought it was a really interesting like thing to say. Cause I was like, what I asked on Instagram and asked you guys what you wish people had told you when you first started. So, um, this is kind of an excerpt on that. And I think it fits well under the concept of like your traditional or negative reinforcement brain. Um, so they said, so and the situation is you're yanking on the lead rope because the horse did something and you yank on the lead rope, acknowledge that you did it and then figure out why you flicked back to the old methods. So if you've switched and this is something that you want to do now and you no longer want to do it the old way, you no longer want to yank on your horse's lead rope as punishment you have to take take a moment, take a beat, and be like, okay, why did I, I did that? Why did I do that? And was it because I got frustrated? Was it because my horse pushed into my space and it worried me a little bit? Was it because I was annoyed by that or I felt like it was disrespectful? What? Where does that come from? Why is that a bad thing? Why can't my horse, you know, step into my space? Uh, how could I approach that differently? And, uh, this person that sent me this message said, I find it often happens when the horse is just confused. Next time, if you notice the horse isn't doing what you want it to try to remember that the horse is probably confused or one of its natural instincts is screaming in its head, like run away or the mailbox will eat you. And you just need to do something differently instead of applying an aversive until they do what you want. So I really like this, um, philosophy, I guess that, you know, if the horse has done something you don't like, the horse is either, these are my like main three, the horse is confused, in pain, or afraid. So if the horse doesn't understand that he needs to be out of your space because you've never rewarded him for being out of your space beyond just not messing with him when he's not in it, um, you know, then he's probably not got a clear understanding of that's where he's supposed to be. Um, or maybe it hurts to walk on the gravel, so he's walking closer to you so he can walk on the grass. Or maybe, um, you know, he's afraid of the horse trailer that's parked over there, so he stepped into your space so he could put a little bit more distance between himself and the trailer. You know, that's confusion, pain, and fear. Those are all explanations for that behavior that have nothing to do with your horse's respect level for you. So think about things like that and make sure that you're aware that that might be influencing you 
and, you know, make a note of it. Just be like, okay, that happened. What's going on in the environment? Let's take a moment and think about it for a little bit. Evaluate why it happened, what we could do better. Is there anything that I could train that would help in those situations? How can I make the horse more comfortable? How can I make it clearer? You know, there's just so much you can do in training to make things easier for you and the horse and help your relationship along the way. So I think that is pretty much going to wrap up this episode. This one has been shorter than the past couple, but I think that's just about all I've got on the transition. Just some things to consider. It's not necessarily like a walkthrough because we just did the positive reinforcement riding series, but this one um, is mostly just about some things to consider. Um, And, you know, actually, I think the last thing on this list is how to incorporate it, uh, you know, you using positive reinforcement in a traditional barn or setting. And really, I think that the shortest, easiest way to explain it is just do what makes you most comfortable. If that means you need to change barns so that you can start fresh and set out your your values and your rules to everyone else and be like, this is what I do. This is how I handle my horse. This is what I'm doing. Feel free to think it's weird and woo-woo, whatever. But it is science and I am trying it. So just please, this is my horse do what I ask you to do with it, um, you know, and, and work with them, obviously, but um, that's one option. Another option is to work with your horse when the other people that might intimidate you or trigger you to feel, you know, competitive or like you need to compare yourself or you have to be better than them or be better than, you know, feeding your horse treats, um, you know, maybe just like don't work at the barn when they're there. Pick a different time. And if you can't avoid it, work in a different area. And I'm not saying that you should avoid people altogether. Ideally, you would just be able to coexist without people judging you or making you feel bad. But if you feel like that would impact your training, get the training first and then start generalizing it to the other areas. It's just like the horses. You know, train them somewhere where they're comfortable so that they are in a learning mindset. They're able to pick it up. You get the behavior really strong and then you can change locations and then generalize it there and then create new associations with that. And you can do the exact same thing with um, yourself. So start in a private place where you feel comfortable and confident and then get really confident and comfortable and make sure that you're solid and then go somewhere else that might be a little bit more challenging. Um, And that way, you know, you'll be really confident and firm in what you believe in and less likely to be deterred by other people that aren't, you know, aligned with you. Uh, And that doesn't mean that you have to, like, avoid everyone at your barn or think you're better than them or hate everybody else. Like, that's not it. It's just a matter of what's going to make your training most effective and most comfortable for you. And if having a bunch of people that are running around and jumping their horses and, you know, if their horses act up, they run the bit through their mouth or spank them with a whip or something, you know, that's probably not going to help your training a whole lot. And just watching it, it's, it's like the mere exposure effect. That's a, I think it's a social psychology term about, um, you know, if you, the mere exposure to a stimulus, something, merely being around something begets likeness. There's a, an expression that goes with it. Familiarity begets likeness. It's the reason that, you know, commercials flash their logo or talk about their food. That's the reason commercials work. When you see a McDonald's commercial, you're not like, yeah, I'm going to call them right now and place an order. The point is to put it in your mind so that you're aware of it. And then when you see it, 
than, you know, if you've never seen, I don't know, like firehouse subs and you've been watching a lot of TV and you've seen a lot of McDonald's and you are trying to decide where to go to eat and it's between firehouse and McDonald's, you're probably going to choose McDonald's because you're familiar with it. It feels normal. Uh, you know, it feels comfortable. It's safe. And I think that's more of a survival thing for us, you know? Um, like don't eat the berries that you don't know what, what they're all about. Eat the berries that you're familiar with. Um, and it works in the same way as training. You know, if you're around people that are rough and abusive with their horses, you're going to be like, okay, well, their horses are fine. So maybe it's not so bad. And then you start drifting from your morality. That's kind of what you talk about with, um, you know, people you are who you hang out with. It's because of the mere exposure effect. You're around things and you get more familiar with it and then you like it more. So if you change that and then you get more familiar with positive reinforcement, you get more familiar with how your horse responds to it, and then you start to like that more and then your mere exposure might rub off on them instead. But it's you have to be mentally, I guess, stable. Not in like you're sane, but confident and stable in what you believe in firm, I guess, firm in what you believe in. Um, and then you'll be less likely to deviate from the thing that you want to do. So anyway, I think that's going to conclude this episode. I hope that you guys enjoyed it and learned something. And also that I did not offend anybody. I really don't, that's not the goal. And I, I just, I feel awful that that's happened before. And uh, I just, I can't apologize enough for that. I hate that. But um, anyway, if you would like to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, you can find me at Jet Equithery and Equithery. I might be changing the Instagram and Facebook handles to Equithery Podcast because I think it would just make more sense. But um, so look, keep an eye out for that change. Um, the Equithery Podcast has its own YouTube. You can find it there. Um, and I think with that said, that's going to wrap up this episode. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday for part four of this, which is going to be the troubleshooting where you guys ask me specific questions about training with positive reinforcement that, um, I'm going to get to. And yeah, that'll wrap up the series. So I hope that you guys have enjoyed it thus far. Please let me know what you think. You can comment on my Instagram or shoot me a message on the podcast account on Instagram or something. Please don't Facebook message me. I never check them and then it's months later and then I feel bad. So don't do that. <laughs> um, DMs work better. But anyway, thank you guys so much for listening and I will catch you guys next Tuesday. Bye.